Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 34. Is that right? Are we on 34? I think. 34. That's a good question. <laughs> I, I've I, I think, think we're on 34. Right. When we skip a week, it gets kind of blurry. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, episode 34, I'm pretty sure, 34, uh, uh, where we share uh, five new albums with you from Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me every week is the gestural Mitchell Davis. So, <laughs> hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going good, man. Going good. It's been a busy week. I'm glad to be back talking about more eclectic music. And uh, how have you been? Good, good. Just really, really, really busy uh, this week. Uh, busy at work, uh, busy away from work. As you know, same old stuff, you know, life in Houston, Texas. Uh, summer coming to an end, kids going back to school. That fun grind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, how about how about you? How's how are things going with you this week? Oh, uh, good. Yeah, really good. Um, yeah, you know, it's like kind of the same thing. Kids going back to school. Um, summer coming to an end. You know, uh, listening to music, playing music. Uh, it's, it's been you know good week, and we have uh, a return guest. I think our first return guest. No, no, yeah, yeah. I think it's our first return guest. Um, we have back with us Brian Clark. What's up, Brian? Hey, how's it going? It's it's good. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing really good. I'm in the same boat with you guys. Uh, the, the Munchkins are in school this week, and uh, so it's been a, a very interesting week. And then you know, I start uh, going back to the old uh, ivory tower and and pontificating on subjects um, <laughs> uh, at the uh, at the university. So. So I'm I'm back at Belmont this uh, this fall and and teaching a wide variety of classes. So what are you doing over thing. at What are you doing over at Belmont? What kind of stuff are you teaching? Uh, well, I'm excited about one class in particular because I put together a proposal for the production styles of the Beatles, and so oh, um, cool. So it's yeah, it was really cool, and uh, you know we we maxed the class out. Uh, so I've got the maximum enrollment that the university will allow. And, um, and, you know, I'm going to talk about the stories behind each song and do a biography and then also talk about the gear and the, the production techniques that they used and, and why and how they got those, those recordings to sound the way they did. So I'm excited about that. And then, um, I've got a couple of other classes. I do a, a jazz pop harmony class and then I do a lyric writing, uh, a class in that, and then, um, an advanced ear training class. So you know, just sort of that. And then I've got my slew of private students and then, you know, do all the other stuff I do outside of the school, which is, you know, gig, gig and make records. So, yeah. 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 Oh man. I'd love to take that Beatles class. That sounds great. (laughs) Man, it's it's fun. It's changed my perspective over the, I read like four or five, I read five books on the Beatles over the summer and, uh, and my, my knowledge has been greatly enhanced from what it used to be. Yeah, I'm sure. So, Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. It's yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, um, we have got some very eclectic music 
uh, well, I guess an eclectic mix of music and some eclectic music um, for you this week. We're going to start with composer Elliot Carter, and we're going to listen to some of his uh, Symphonia Sum Fluxe Pratium Spey. Yeah, probably not pronouncing that very well. And then um, we're going to move on to the Carter family, um, some recordings they did uh, between 1927 and 1934. Uh, then we're going to move on to Martin McCarthy, his album Biker Hill. Uh, then we're going to listen to a Brazilian samba uh, legend, Cartola. And then we're going to finish with opera legend Enrico Caruso. Uh, so let's start with Elliot Carter. And uh, Elliot Carter, as I mentioned at the very end of our last episode, was born in 1908, and the dude is still kicking. He is uh, still living, still writing a bunch of music on commission, still attending premieres. Um, he's 104 years old. That That's just an amazing blessing. I, I mean, I mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> yeah. To, to be able to do something you know even close to what he's done for that long and and to 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 be such a i mean it, it, the way the way he does it the style of music the way he composes that's that's really cool that's that's awesome yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that blows my mind just someone that is still living that has a real memory of of world war 1 I mean, he was, he, you know, he was around 10 years old during World War One. Wow. Um, you know, I, I just read this biography this summer of a Nadia Boulanger, one of his uh, composition teachers that he went to study with. Um, and uh, she was uh, taught many of the biggest names in classical composition of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here looking at a picture of him with, with Aaron Copeland, a very young Aaron Copeland in the 1930s. You know, I mean, he's an adult, 1930s. And I'm thinking, this guy's still alive and he's still yeah. writing music. That's it's amazing. Just, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to uh, check out this album, uh, his, uh, which contains his Symphonia and also his Clarinet Concerto. And uh, I pulled two excerpts from the Symphonia. And because uh, usually with these, what I've done in the past with these classical records is I've tried to pull excerpts from the same piece so we can sort of get a sense of a little bit of a sense of how one piece of music progresses. So but there is a clarinet concerto on this disc, too, that uh, we're not going to uh, be able to play. But um, this was released in 1999 uh, as the BBC Symphony under the direction of Oliver Nussen. And uh, this piece was written between 1993 and 1996. Uh, and it's a, a huge work. It's a symphonic, you know, symphonic in scope um, and in length and in conception and all that stuff. Um, and uh, I don't know. Let's start with Brian. What, what do you think of uh, either this piece or, or Elliot Carter in general? Well, um it's a it's a complex relationship that I have. Um, <clears throat> I like I, I certainly have a great admiration for his contributions to classical and modern classical music. Um, that's not an oxymoron, um, but <laughs> but I think that um, you know his 
his music in general to me uh i have this problem with a lot of atonal composers it leaves me sort of feeling like i had too much of a good thing and um not that I'm, you know, it needs to be about a major scale and it has to be tonal for it to be good, but I think that his particular approach is something that is different from other atonal composers whom I have a tendency to like more. Um, I love his, his systemica- systemication of um, set theory, and Alan Fort was one of the guys who really sort of codified that um, you know, but it's basically where you take every possible um, permutation and combination of two notes and then do the same thing with three notes and four notes and five notes and so on and so forth. And then you write pieces around that. So you're, it is truly an atonal system, but it's not a serial atonal system that was sort of developed in the, uh, the sort of the second Viennese school with Schoenberg and yeah, his disciples yeah. of, you know, Berg and Webern and, and that, and, and then Boulez uh, really taking it to another degree. So I like that because his music feels more, a little more real and a little more human and not merely about the process right right but but i feel like and i I don't know it's probably i'm probably not the guy to start with because i you know i could really go off on this the relationship between atonal me too (laughs) yeah the relationship between atonal and tonal music is is very strange i don't know how it affects you guys but for me if i listen to a lot of atonal music um psychologically i feel very existential you know, where it's just sort of like, yeah, what's the point? It doesn't, I don't, I don't feel rewarded. I don't sing it after I'm done. I don't feel like I've gone on a journey other than, and this is one of the things that I think Elliot Carter is a master of, is the orchestration process. And so when I listen to Elliot Carter, I have to remind myself to turn off those expectant qualities that I would normally associate with listening to tonal music and just really get into the beautiful tone colors. But I can't, I'm always having to to censor myself and when I analyze it and try to figure out, well, where is this going? And it's like, it just, it's not supposed to go anywhere. There isn't a point. To, there isn't a point to this. There isn't a theme group and a, and a modulation and other things. Now he does that rhythmically. Um, which is interesting. And I think that that's one of the things that hold his pieces together because certainly, you know, I mean, if you guys can hum any of the melodies in this piece or any of the two pieces that, that you listen to, let me know because if you can do that without having a score in front of you, I'll be really impressed because I can't, you know, even though I loved the tone color and I loved his orchestration, um, it just felt like, yeah, that would have been good for about two minutes and then wedged in between some tonality, I would have loved it even more. So I think that, man, I don't know. It's very deep. I'm trying to censor myself on it, not in the sense of expletives, but just in the sense of scope. It's like I I have this relationship with serial and, and atonal music that it just is not spiritually rewarding to me. And, um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, people in general just don't gravitate towards it. Right. Um, you know. Yeah. What about now? I, I'm interested to hear um, your take, Mitch, because one one reason I'm really interested to hear your take is because Brian and I we we both went you know went through music school, um, you know, through the graduate level and all this stuff, and at some point. 
you know, in both of our uh, journeys through music school, we both studied this stuff. We studied Elliot Carter's music. We studied pitch set theory and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, I really am interested in hearing your perspective just as a pure listener of this music. You know? Yeah. See, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I didn't go to music school to study, you know, any kind of music theory. But the the first thing that that jumped out with me and a lot of Elliot Carter's work was the way he used utilizes percussion um, instruments along with the other, you know, symphonic parts. You know, and it, it's not like he did it in a way that it had never been done before. But in, in a way, I guess he had his own personal style of of playing with the harmonies in in the percussion session section, I should say. And, and I I have a, a a love for what he does with that, where you you hear all sorts of you know little pops and clicks and noodling in the background that you don't normally hear with you know, your average, you know, symphonic piece. And I think that's what, what I, I like a lot about this. Um, it, it, it kind of is, um, something that, that kind of, you know, toys with, you know, the imagination and, and, and it kind of allows you a, a freedom that you don't normally feel with, you know, the regular classical structure, I should say. I mean, it, I, I imagine it would, it would run some people, you know, rub some people the wrong way. Even in the in the book, it talks about how you know some of the initial, you know, sort of I guess you know influence or or, or sound of of his music at the start ran a lot of people. You know, kind of ran some people off. You know, but I I think if you if you kind of stick with it and kind of listen throughout, it's it's sort of rewarding towards the end where you kind of you know make a a journey of it, so to speak. Uh, and I, I know that, that I, I've heard things like this before. And I, I mentioned, um, you know, before we kind of started our recording, um, the, the merry melodies, when you listen to like old, old Looney Tunes, I mean, sometimes it, it kind of reminds me of, of, of some of what that sounds like, which I, I, I love that too. I mean, it's, it's it's kind of music made to a, a score with uh, you know a motion picture or, or a cartoon if you would, but I mean I, I dig that kind of stuff you know where it's it's just not typical of of what you're used to sort of listening to especially you know from a sort of studied or learned perspective uh, he he definitely had a an unusual approach to to the way he he sort of made composition I I think. And yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's lasted, you know, this long, you know, where he's still I mean, I, that's something too that. Like you said, I mean, he's he's been around, you know, for a century, <laughs> you know, that's hard to imagine with, you know, pretty much anybody doing anything, you know, let alone music composition. Um, and I mean, that's 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 just really amazing, you know. To have someone who's, you know, been, you know, recognized, you know, by, you know, his peers, he, he, he two time Pulitzer Prize winner, um, just just really remarkable stuff. And I mean, like I said, just I, I love the way it seems as if he can he can literally take parts of, of, of what he's thinking and and sort of 
you know, bring it alive, you know, through every section, not just the strings or the, the horns, but but the percussion is is like the book says, the per- the percussion session is is they're very busy. You know, they don't have, you know, an opportunity to to sort of sit back as much as some other percussion sessions might. They they have to go right along with what everybody else is doing harmonically at times, you know, which is is somewhat different. And um, I think that's kind of what what I took from from uh, these recordings. Yeah. Um, You know, like Brian, uh, I have a mixed relationship with Elliot Carter, you know, (laughs) just just like you said, Brian, Um, you know, this this music, I think it's something that you have to take. You have to take it for what it is, not for what it's not. You know, I think when when you're listening to this music, your brain is constantly telling you uh, this isn't melody, this isn't harmony, or at least the way we think of harmony. This isn't rhythm. This isn't this. You know, our brain is constantly telling us what this music isn't. And I think that the first step in in appreciating the music, and, you know, I'm not saying um, trying to convince you that you should like it, but the first step in appreciating the music is to sort of push that away and just take take what you're hearing for what it is, you know? Um, and uh, it's like, it's really, it's like a, a different language. I mean, and like uh, you were saying, Brian, you have to listen to it with really different ears. Um, and you have to listen to things like, you know, sonority, like you said, and the colors of the orchestration and all that stuff. Um, the first uh, part of this that we're going to hear is from the second movement, the Adagio Tenebroso, the opening of that movement. And uh, from what I could gather, the the Latin title, Sum Fluxe Pretium Spe, uh, is loosely translated to I am the prize of flowing hope. That's probably like a really strange literal translation, but um, each one of these movements has a sort of subtitle. And the subtitle of this one is... Uh, I am the glass of the blind goddess. So that's the uh, the subtitle of this music. And uh, I mean, this music to me, you know, it has a very sort of heaving, sorrowful, almost lonely character to it. Um, and, you know, very dark colors, um, really long notes sort of punctuated by these, like I said, he- sort of heaving moments. Um, but, you know, in its way, it can be quite beautiful. But in the in the other sense, you know, Brian, I agree with you that you know the whole the atonal music thing. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 a tough thing. I mean, there's a some things that can be very beautiful about it, but in the end, it seems almost so fleeting, you know, or so ephemeral that like when it's gone, it's gone, and you don't really have that much to hang on to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's listen to this just so people can get an idea of what we're talking about here. We've already talked about it a lot. Um, So let's hear this uh, first excerpt from the second movement of Elliot Carter's Symphonia. This is uh, the Adagio Tenebroso.
And we just heard the Adagio Tenebroso of Elliot Carter. We're going to move on to the third and final movement of this Symphonia. Um, the uh, what's the title? I didn't write down. This is the Allegro uh, Scorevole. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which means um, fast and scurrying, which I think is is a kind of apt title. Um, and it has this subtitle again, which is I am the brief nature of wind. Um, and, uh, it's kind of like that. I mean, you know, with this music for me, you know, a lot of people, when they hear music, especially instrumental music, they tend to come up with a sort of, uh, movie in their mind, you know, like sort of images and sort of a story to go along with it. And I usually never do that, you know, with tonal music, but with atonal music, I find myself doing it all the time. And I don't know if it's like, because I'm just like, I need something to create something to, uh, to associate with what I'm hearing that I can latch onto, you know, um, I totally agree. But, uh, yeah, but this, you know, I, I, when I hear music like this, I see images all the time. And with this, I see, you know, it's like, you know, the images of like a windstorm, you know, and like leaves and debris being blown around in all directions. And then sometimes, you know, the focus, it goes from like a very specific thing, you know, pan, sort of uh, uh, zoomed in on like maybe one leaf. And we get to see this individual leaf and its sort of journey through the through the air. And then it'll pan back to the whole scene, you know, the whole chaotic scene. And... Uh, um, this is what I find myself doing uh, with this kind of music. Uh, what did you think of this, Mitch? The second move or third movement? Well, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of the person where I can I can sort of put imagery to to whatever when it comes to music. I mean, and I mean I, I think you know going back to what I said earlier about you know the the sort of you know use of, of the way the percussion comes in and the, the, the different little pops and clicks and, and noises in the background. I mean, that's, I, I like the, the sort of, you know, leaning away of, of the regular structure of, of how the music is supposed to be. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a, I'm a type of person. I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, ready to, to sort of be, be challenged in that sense to where, you know, I'm, I'm ready to kind of listen you know, to see what, where he's going to go, you know, cause, cause I may not always like it or I may not always, you know, sort of, you know, you know, get it, so to speak to where he, you know, I, I understand exactly what he was trying to do, but it, it's just fun, you know, to, to kind of hear what, what he's doing as far as the, the, the little, you know, arrangements and things that go on, you know, in the background, like, you know, the first piece is kind of, you know, it was kind of dark and, and mysterious, but had a, a nice harmony to it. And this is, is a little more, you know, playful and, you know, kind of um, light, I guess I should say, it, it, you know, compared to the to the first piece. So I, I, I think, um, you know, it's it's definitely something that I, I'm, I'm definitely more, you know, curious about now that I've, I've kind of listened to some of his stuff, you know, this is like the first time I've really got to sit down and, and kind of, you know, hear, you know, I guess the difference of what you guys are really even talking about, you know, as, as, as far as, you know, atonal, you know, sounding music. So, I mean, it, I guess if, if I kind of had that perspective, you know, I, I may, you know, kind of be taken aback a little more, but uh, so far that hasn't happened yet. So 
um, you know, it's it's definitely it's definitely different. Uh, but I, 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 I'm definitely loving the the different you know sounds that you normally don't have, along with the other harmonies and and classical music that that he brings, um, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, Brian, what do you think? Well. Uh, I actually like this uh, movement much more than I like the first um, listening example. Uh, there's some wonderful moments in this. Um, it's it's very cool um, for Elliot Carter's music. And um, I think that uh, of the two, I like this one the most. But I have to, if I can, I just go back. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that we didn't men- mention before and I thought might be interesting for some of the listeners. But, you know, when you listen to atonal music um, – and which I've listened to, and I know you have too, uh, Tony. That I've probably got you know many thousands of hours of this. Um, I've taught <laughs> course. I've, I've taught courses on it. Um, you know, so. But I have to say that um, there are different approaches to atonal writing, and one of the things that's interesting about Elliot Carter is that he represents sort of a, an American twist at being part of that whole Columbia-Princeton thing with Milton Babbitt and, uh, and some of the other contemporaries that were on faculty. But, you know, Carter has taught at the most uh, sacrosanct institutions in, in, throughout his teaching career. Peabody, Columbia, he was at Queens College, he was at Yale, Cornell, and Juilliard. So of all of the the classical based conservatory schools he's probably hit the upper 90 percentile of all of those yeah and he's done it through his whole career now here's something that's kind of interesting and, and it's just i'll put this out there as a case in point because again to me i think how i make a value judgment on music is how does it affect me am i and it can be a bad affectation in this case with most of elliot's um writing I am affected in a visceral way and it borders on the repugnant. But that being (laughs) said, that doesn't mean that it's not good. It's just that I personally, it doesn't jive with me because I need something more for my music. For me, music is basically a spiritual uh, journey. And if I feel that, that it's all academic and that it's all in your head and it's all about a process and permutation and combination, this is sort of where we get into a dividing line between the emotional nature of, of man and the analytical nature of man. And those two are mutually exclusive. And Eliot's is certainly 100% in the analytical side. To yeah, me. yeah. So... What that means for me is that I have to go along in that and say, okay, it's not about how I feel. It's about what you want to think about. And, and, and I think most listeners who are going to listen to this second piece will find themselves going, oh, yeah, this sounds like you know, the part in, in The Exorcist where he's walking down the, the avenue, the lonely alley, and there's trash cans and a you know, sodium streetlight with yeah. some fog on it. You, you put this in there, and to me, I, I, I'd say this with all my classes, that when I go into this area of, of tonal music or atonal music, I say, you're constructing a narrative because you do not have any capability of being able to evaluate the music otherwise. You can't, there's no way that you can statistically say this is a good piece or this is a bad piece based on the compositional integrity unless you look at the score. When you deal with tonal music, 
you don't have that problem. With tonal music, you can follow the thematic development. You can understand the modulatory processes. You can do all of these types of things, but you can't do that when it's atonal. So it leaves us without an anchor. You know, we're just kind of floating around in this sort of sea of tonality, and we may see something really, really beautiful, but we don't know where it is in relationship to what we saw before. Right. So, um, so that's sort of where I sit with this whole atonal stuff. Now, I could say if if anybody wants to go and we we should we should do like a footnotes to this. I don't know if you guys have been doing that, but here's a couple of other pieces that I would recommend that maybe somebody want to go and take a listen to. But I think you should start with the electroacoustic guys in some ways and look at you know Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri, which sounds like Henry or spelled like Henry. Um, that is sort of like from the mid 40s of guys that are literally going out with tape recorders and making symphonies out of train sounds you know these are found sounds that they're coming back and cutting to tape and then in some cases broadcasting and recording them onto a 78 and then repeating that process again and when most people hear that they're like this is just total trash but when you analyze it you can say nope here's theme one here's theme two here's theme three they may be train whistles and they may be axle bangs and all kinds of gravels being shoveled around but nevertheless the music has tonal organization now to me that's just as musical as what we're listening to coming up and it's just as musical as um, the Carter family or anything that's tonal. So, um, you know, it's just a weird thing. I just thought I'd just throw that out there as a little bit of a perspective on it. But I actually like this piece. This piece is pretty cool. I, I enjoyed it. I thought there were some wonderful orchestration moments in here. Um, and even pedal points that lasted longer, you know, to where you, you almost got a, a, a bedrock of, of tonality in some instances. So I really right, like this piece. Right. Yeah. And, and the book kind of does that too, Brian, where you talk about the footnotes where it, you know, it says next stop, you know, Alvin Berg and, and uh, Ligeti, you know, as two other people, you know, side notes to kind of look at, you know, in, in comparison, uh, which, you know, I, I definitely agree. It's, 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 it's interesting, you know, what you brought up, you know, to where, People can take things that are, you know, obviously not musical of of any kind of nature on their own, but but like you said, the way they would just go out and and, and just record these sounds and and sort of arrange them, you know, whether like you said it'd be a train or or you know a trash can, a metal trash can being banged on, you know, and and, and take it and, and make it, you know, sort of into a musical piece, you know. I mean that's. I mean, that's obviously something, you know, that that is not, you know, traditional music, but it, it can be done. It has been done, you know, by by a, a wide variety of, of folks that are just kind of, you know, trying to step out of the box, I suppose. But mm -hmm. uh, any, yeah. anyway. And when he did was one little summary thing for me. Um, you mentioned Ligeti and same kind of thing. Um I found that, and I think Tony and I've talked about this in before, but I have I love the Polish composers of the 20th century, just in yeah. general. I think that the quality of the Polish composers in the 20th century is absolutely fantastic. And Legaty is one, Szymanowski is one, which spelled out looks like Zymanowski, uh, but Szymanowski is is fantastic. Certainly, Penderecki is great. Uh, even his choral, his, his uh, acapella choral, like the Sabbat Mater, is amazing piece of music. Um, and then, of course, uh, Ludoszowski, which looks like Ludoszlowski. Um, but 
that is a different way of being completely atonal, but I, lo- I get his writing process. I hear things differently than I do in Eliot. And that's the thing that I was saying before. Eliot has a particular, unique American perspective that was you know, duly informed by, by Nadia Boulanger. But he has a, a very distinct American atonal process to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, this... You said there's little little elements of tonality in this music that come out, and you know the the '90s sort of represented a time when a lot of these like really hardcore atonal dudes um, started to soften a bit and uh, introduce you know more sort of tonal moments in their music um, and start started to compose a little more intuitively and not so tied to a process, you know. Um, other composers like Pierre Boulez did this in the nineties and he, uh, with pieces like Sir and Cease, which is one of, uh, I love that piece. Now I, I have to qualify that by saying I always hated Boulez's music, Boulez's music. Mm. And, uh, but he, he came out with this stuff in the nineties that was a little bit different in this piece, Sir and Cease that he wrote for, um, it's a, uh, for three pianos, three harps and three percussionists. And, uh, it's just a super unbelievably beautiful piece, but it's still kind of, you know, in this atonal world. But, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, let's listen to this. (laughs) Yeah. Enough talking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, uh, this is the third movement from Elliot Carter, Symphonia, Sumfluxe, Pretium Spey. Uh, this is his, and I have to look again. Um, his, ale- <laughs> his Allegro Scorevole. Thank you. 
And we just heard Elliot Carter. And we're going to move on to the Carter family. No relation to Elliot Carter. Um, Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the Carter family, their recordings from 1927 to 1934, released or, you know, re-released on a compilation in uh, 2000. And this stuff, I mean, has been re-released and re-re-re-re-re-released many, many times, you know. Um, and this is just one compilation. Uh, the Carter family was uh, A.P. Carter, uh, his wife Sarah Carter, and then uh, I believe is Sarah's cousin or sister-in-law, maybe Maybell Carter, um, who was I think uh, you're right. I think guitar. Was cousin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was married to A.P.'s brother. Okay. Um, and uh, you know they were really one of the first recording artists uh, to record this kind of. I guess, you know, back then it would, would have been thought of like mountain music or, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, you know, produced the lineage of what we refer to now as country music and bluegrass music. And, and, uh, um, this was kind of, you know, where it started in the recording industry, obviously this isn't where it started, but yeah. Um, and, and they, they had like a mix of everything. Apparently, like you said, this definitely, you know, mountain type country music, but also gospel um, you know, hymns and, and old, you know, British folk songs, I guess just whatever was, whatever was popular at the time, it, it seemed like, um, you know, they, they had a mix of, of, a, of a wide variety of things. It seemed like, um, listening to, to this compilation, especially. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, in some circles are thought of almost as like country music royalty. I mean, their legacy, uh, spun out from this, you know, into the '60s with the Carter sisters. Um, you know, June Carter, obviously, later marrying Johnny Cash, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. continuing the legacy that way. Oh, yeah. um, Brian, uh, you are a resident of Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what do you think of the Carter family, and what is the sort of uh, you know, perception of them in Nashville. Uh, well, I'll start with the second one first because that'll be the easiest to to document to you know sort of tell you about. But uh, the Carter family is royalty, um, not just in Nashville, but I I think it's just they're they're part of that uh great American lineage that you would throw Robert Johnson into and others. Um, they are at the forefront of early American recorded music, which is significant for us as Americans because it helps preserve that early melting pot part of our culture where there were many different influences. And you'll see that actually in the discography uh, of the Carter family because they also recorded a wide range of songs. But these uh they had a great exhibition on the carter family um i think it was two years ago at the country music hall of fame in downtown nashville and uh, i think right now it's uh, buck owens it's the it's the uh, it's either buck or chet that's up there now and that the, each one they do is just absolutely fascinating but they had the carter family and they had they had mother maybell which is m- what most people refer to her as mother maybell's uh gibson uh, L4 there, um, the one that she actually did all these recordings that, that you will hear 
that she played. Um, it's there. It's downtown in in Nashville, and um, it was just fantastic to go and get to see this guitar, this legendary guitar that so many recordings were made because their discography, their their recorded discography, is massive, and I think that they are widely regarded as, as some of the most significant folks to actually record American folk music and we would think of it now as sort of pre-bluegrass and definitely country and of course gospel and different from um, different from the type of gospel that you were going to get say down in New Orleans in the Mississippi Delta region which is you know Robert Johnson and, and all of the sort of uh, guitar evangelists that were coming out in the 20s and the 30s which would be another footnote that I would add to to this um, so you know there's quite a bit of great stuff in there I love the Carters uh, I, I love their discography I have their discography and, and I can't remember how many hundreds of songs it is but it's it's ridiculous it's a lot yeah and you know I, I remember talking with um, <clears throat> some folks that had worked with Johnny Cash and we were talking about Mother Maybell and and um, and you know they were very quick to point out that the Carters were really farmers and they literally worked the fields and then they just drove into Bristol to go and do these recordings and then when, we were, when they were done they didn't go to record stores they didn't go shopping they didn't go on tour they just went back to their farm and got their farm clothes on and we're like yeah that's good let's time to go you know let's, go, let's work the corn and so these were true uh true folk musicians and i love it i love the i love the two selections that were picked um i don't know which one you're gonna play first you're gonna do the the willow tree first yeah or? yeah okay cool what a wonderful song uh for this one case in point and i just want to bring this up as a final little interesting tidbit but as far as guitar plays guitar players go in the carter family the normal carter family that we think of it originally started with four and quickly became three which was the three that you mentioned before so sarah maybell and ap ap never played an instrument so he basically just sang harmony and and uh, we will put we'll put saying in air quotes because <laughs> he's a little <laughs> he's a little pitchy by our standards of hyper <laughs> auto tuned vocals. <laughs> but um, yeah. but a little, little pitchy dog. Yeah, exactly. Yo, man, run <laughs> that through. Dude. Run that yeah. through some some auto tune, man. man. I want the I want the flow rider treatment on that. Blow my whistle, baby. And so mm. um, I don't know if you guys heard that song. It's it's hysterical. But anyway, <laughs> so um, so yeah, so. AP never did anything. So you basically have an auto harp and you have guitar and that's it. So all of these songs are recorded with just two instruments. And so Maybell, who played guitar, had to come up with a very interesting way of playing. And I would put her, and this will sound strange on the topic, I would put her as one of the great guitar pioneers along with Les Paul, Charlie Christian, Wes Montgomery, Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, and Alan Holdsworth. I would put her in that pantheon wow. because she developed this amazing technique where she would strum and also play the melody on the lower course. Yeah, I, I wrote that. You know, she would play the melody in the bass all the time. That's another. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing that jumped out at me immediately. Yep, yeah. and she had she had no training. This is just something that she did on her own, and it is one of these 
beautiful things that she's able to do. And I don't think she gets credit for it. But if, if somebody said, you know, there's not a lot of women that play guitar well, and the ones that do are few compared to the men. Send and your she- emails to Brian Clark. At- <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. It's a, it's a guy's <laughs> instrument for the most part. You know what I mean? If you look at what's in the, any magazine of guitar, you know, it's, it's overwhelmingly men. And the ones, the females that do play well are deservedly in there. You know, everybody from, you know, Emily Rimler to, you know, you, just, you, you can name it. I mean, Sharon Isbin, you know, sure, certainly. Um, well, we were talking about this very issue uh, when we talked about Joan Baez. And, you know, we we were listening to her recordings and her her sing and her accompany herself on the guitar. And I was just thinking, you know, I mean, uh, growing up as a guitarist, you know, you and I both and, you know, reading Guitar Magazine and reading about all these, uh, like, you know, like you mentioned, mostly dudes that are, you know, accredited with the stuff. And I was like, you know, I never heard Joan Baez mentioned, but she is she's a great guitar player, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very underrated, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah, totally underrated. Yeah. So, yeah, you, I, that's my take on uh, the Carter family. Love them, love them. Love the themes of this song, too. And they they can go from being very light and very informative and very carefree to something that'll just rake you through an emotional, you know, hell because of the subject matter. And they have they have a r- wide range of topics that they talk about. And uh, Bury Me Underneath the, the, the Weeping Willow is a classic song and, and one of their best, along with Wildwood Flower. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what something you said about AP. The, the book talks about him as being a, an aggregator, uh, where he, he kind of was, you know, the, the song catcher or the song writer even at times, where mm-hmm. he would literally go out you know, while they were, you know, going from place to place, you know, you know, writing down, you know, stories of, of people that had been through, you know, good times and bad times and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And he would just literally suck all that stuff in and then, you know, they would sing about it. And, uh, you know, I think that was one of his, uh, you know, his main stakes in, in this whole deal was where he was sort of like the you know, the heart of, of what they, you know, would compose songs about a lot of the times as far as the lyrics. And uh and and like you said, I mean his his singing is, you know, it's 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 there, you know. <laughs> but I yeah. mean as as far as the you know the actual vocals, I mean it, it, it wasn't really, you know, too much on him uh mm-hmm. as, as as far as the, the harmonies that you hear. And and the like you said, the the variety of, of styles that, that they brought you know, as as singers, I mean, they 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 sang all sorts. Like like you said, country music really owes a lot to them. But they were really more than than that. I mean, they had their 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 old time style of gospel singing is is just brilliant. I love it. And I mean, the the folk style singing, you know, just where it's almost like telling stories. And I mean, obviously, we're going to get into that you know, more so later with another artist in the podcast. But I mean, just some very, very good stuff. And I mean, as as old as the recordings are, I mean, they, you know, they still have a a great quality to them because of of the contents of the of the songs. And like you said, the performance, you know, especially the the guitar playing um, from uh, um, I I can't I'm sorry, I forgot her name. Maybell. Maybell from Mother Maybell. Yeah. And uh, it's it's just a, a really great collection. I mean, as I went through it, 
and, and was listening to it, you know, like you said, it, it it's really Hall of Fame stuff, you know, just just great, yeah. great, you know, picture of what it was like during that period, you know, which you know, obviously, you know, it was it was tough. Everybody had to work, you know, even, you know, them as recording stars, like you said, when they they got out of the studio, it was right back to the grind, you know, and, um, you know, just just a really great testament on on how that that sort of circle, you know, started and, and then went on to, you know, include, you know, obviously, like you said, June Carter, you know, going on to, you know, be with Johnny Cash and then and that, you know, legendary line going on to uh, to their daughter, uh, uh, Roseanne. And, you know, just just a, just an amazing, legendary, you know, collection of, of songs and, and recordings. Awesome. Yeah, and just just to be just one a little clear, and this is only because I live in Nashville that I know this, but uh-huh. but Rose, Roseanne is not the daughter of Johnny Cash and June Carter. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Johnny was married to a, a lady named Vivian before, and that's it. But the daughter from Johnny and June is um, is uh, is John. Or I'm sorry, not the not the daughter, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the son of them is a John Carter Cash. Yeah. So. So, and just, yeah. just, the, just the kind of like the lineage, though, just of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're I definitely, I would say she would definitely take, take, take influence, you know, from that line. I mean, not, not saying they, they were, you know, she was, you know. Anyway, you were, I got you. <laughs> anyway, that, I like the uber geek stuff, but I just knew that from the, the, the going to the going to the country music hall of fame. And, and you know, uber geek, uber geek is fine here. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're good with that. Dude, we we just talked about Elliot Carter for like thirty five minutes. I don't think we even have to say we're uber geeks. But um, <laughs> all right, so let's check out this first uh, track from the Carter family. This is "Bury Me Under the Weeping Willow." We just heard Bury Me Under the Weeping Willow, and we're going to move on to River of Jordan. And uh, this is just a great example of a straight-up gospel tune. Um, And I love the style and the way it's done in that, you know, it sounds. this is just how you would have heard it. If you stepped into a rural church in the South, 
on some Sunday and you could have easily heard exactly what, you know, we're hearing here. Um, yeah. Uh, Mitch, do you want to start with this one? The way she says Jordan. Yeah. That's like the first thing that just smacks you right in the face. I mean, because <laughs> it, it's not like even uh, offensive at all. It's like you like you said, it's just like what what was going on then the 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 sort of uh dialect and the style i mean it it it's a great you know obviously you know traditional sort of spiritual tune but the the way they sound i mean it, it's it's so good you know and and just so you know straight ahead you know for for what they were doing at the time um i something that comes to my mind um also too when i listen to this is uh is oh brother where art thou that the movie the the Coen Brothers movie where they you know they they kept going in to to record those songs and they, how they were old timey songs that's what this reminds me of is is something that's just very I guess what you would call old timey but but really good and and just you know traditional you know grassroots sound of of American music um, you know it, it, that's that's just what I hear when I listen to this, I mean, just, you know, really, really, you know, rural sounding, you know, um, for the period of of just, just what America sounded like at that time and in that place. Um, you know, and I'm pretty sure Brian, I mean, you, you probably thought a lot of the same thing, same thing. I mean, just, you know, I mean, I, I can only imagine, um, them in the studio, um, singing this and, 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 and how it was, you know, where they, they probably would just go in and just run through, you know, maybe five or six songs at a time, you know, and, and just, just, just make magic, you know, in, in the process of, of just a few, I guess, hours or whatever. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I love the way that she says Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a cool, you know, the, the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about our country is that wherever you go, because we're so big, you know, and there's just so much, literally just miles between people, that the inflections and dialects, regional dialects are always interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And, and especially when you get into the South and move out towards the Midwest, there's a, a, a tremendous variation in the language. And uh, and this this reflects that you know that song and there's there's one other song that immediately came to mind when I heard it not by the Carter family but by um, a guy a very old recording um, by Red is he went by Red River but it was Red River Dave McEnery and Dave McEnery did a song he he may not have written it I don't know who wrote it but it's called Cigarettes Whiskey and Wild Wild Women. And and it's it's awesome because when he sings it, he he basically goes cigarettes and whiskey and wild wild women. So you get cigarettes and whiskey, <laughs> and and it's just totally you know I, I don't know what dialect that is from, like what regional area, but it's one of those other types of recordings where uh, the pronunciation of the words are so striking. But again, uh, I agree with you 100 percent, Michelle. You you know it, it such a wonderful. Uh, song and just so so meaningful and a delight to listen to so i love this one yeah and and it always gets me you know the uh to think about the recording you know mitch you brought up 
so, uh, um, dude, my mind is blank. Um, you brought out, you brought up, uh, Oh brother, where art thou? And when they're yeah. going into the studio and, um, I mean, uh, Brian, maybe you can um, shed some light on this cause you're certainly more familiar with recording techniques and stuff than we are. But, um, what I'm guessing is, you know, when they go into, into the recording studio during this time in the 20s, you know, they just sit down and they just do it in like one take. And there's nobody like in an uh, isolation room. There's nobody overdubbing vocals and they just do it right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in some instances, um, what they usually would have at least would be a, a one wall, uh, most likely with the window. So you would have sort of a, a very primitive control room. And the only reason why you would do that is so that way uh, you could have the recording apparatus, which you got to remember that this time, guys, they're recording to what? What's the medium that they're recording to? Yeah, they're, they're recording, recording directly to vinyl, right? Or or well, directly to wax or whatever. A- a- acetate, right? Oh, yeah, acetate, rec- right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're recording to 78 RPM, you know, the big, mm-hmm. thick acetates. That's their recording device. So um, so what they would do is, is they would all sit in and – you know, it's it's very simple thing. It's like if, if you think about the RCA with the dog in front of the gramophone and the big bell-like, um, you know, horn that comes out. It's exactly that same process, but reversed. So it's a blank acetate. It's spinning, and then that horn is channeling all of those sounds onto the stylus, which which basically etches the groove into the acetate. So, in order to get a mix, so to speak, it's all about placement in the room. So the vocalist is going to be closer to the horn. The louder instruments are going to be in the back. So there's no separation. There is no multi-channel. It's just basically like, hey, guys, we're going to sing into a giant horn. <laughs> so, you know, you got to figure out where you want to be. Case in point, this is, I don't know why this triggers it, but case in point, um, Louis Armstrong, great Satchmo. Um, he was so loud when he would blow his cornet and trumpet that they literally a lot of times would have to put him down the hall and have the band close in another <laughs> room because he could blow with such force um, in his in his early recordings like the Hot Five and, and in the King Creole jazz band that he was in in New Orleans back in the day. But anyway, so yeah, it's all about that mixing side is basically like placement in the room in much the same way that you would do uh, with classical music in the sense that the performers have to mix themselves and the audience essentially is, is partaking in that. So that's what they would do. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Interesting. Yeah, I, I knew you'd have a, a cool insight into that. Um, so let's check this out from, uh, the, uh, the Carter family, our last excerpt from them. This is River of Jordan. Table. I'm gonna eat at the welcome table some of these days. I'm gonna eat at the welcome table some of these days. 
And we just heard River of Jordan by the Carter family. And we're going to move on to British guitarist or folk singer uh, Martin Carthy. His album Biker Hill with violinist Dave Swarbrick uh, released in 1967. And uh, this album, you know, it's billed as or as genre. It's billed as folk. But really, it's more uh, folk as in British Isle folk music, you know, Um folk music of Ireland and Scotland and, and parts of England. And uh, it's built on that, you know, which you hear in a lot of Celtic groups and Irish groups of uh, existing, uh, you know, folk songs from that region and sort of building on those. And in this case, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of these groups sort of modernized uh, this music, you know, and brought it a uh, little, made it a little bit hipper, I guess, for a newer generation of uh, of music fans, and uh, uh, just generally, what'd you guys think of this album, uh, Brian? I guess you can start. Well, you know what? You start because you you've, you've uh, asked us every time, so I want to hear <laughs> I want to hear what you think. <laughs> well, you know this album. Um, you know, uh, Tom Moon said that uh, it, it brings a sort of sense of virtuosity to this music. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of this music is virtuoso like in itself, you know, when you hear a lot of uh, Irish music and Celtic music and, uh, you know, the chieftains and all these other groups, you know, and you hear their violin players on this stuff. They're really great players. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are really smoking players and they can really, really play their instruments, you know, within this uh, style. Um, and yeah, so uh, I, I, you know, I like this stuff. I, I like this stuff anyway, you know, um, Celtic music and stuff for some reason. I just, I just like it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, we had Tom moon on and he said, this is a music that, you know, he sort of didn't really identify with and he had to do a lot of research. And, uh, for some reason I, I just like this stuff when we hear it. Um, it's interesting to hear some of the songs, you know, uh, some of the lyrical content of the songs. And sometimes you're like, kind of like, whoa, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, lyrically, definitely, yeah. Uh, you know, like this first tune, uh, The Man of Burnham Town. Um, I mean, musically, you know, it's it's pretty traditional sounding. I mean, uh, Martin Carthy, uh, again, a uh, really good guitar player, uh, along with violinist Dave Swarbrick, again, very good. Uh, player and uh, you know he's not the strongest singer out there but in folk music you know you don't really have to be a strong singer just as uh, Tom Moon points out you just have to be able to uh, get the story across and uh, this tune is like you know the lyrical content of this tune is basically um, I I think it's about infidelity but he really doesn't come out and say it so if you listen to the lyrics as they're stated it just kind of sounds like, you know, dude goes to sea and leaves his wife there, comes back, sees her out with some friends, and she's excited about him coming back, and then he beats the crap out of her. I mean, that's that's basically like, you know, 
what, yeah. what you hear. And he's like, you know, if you ever do that again, I'll like make you rue the day you were born. And he like beats the crap out of her with a stick. Um, yeah, I was trying to figure that out too. Was was it that she was stepping out on him, or was it that because he he kind of makes it like you know the moral of the story is basically don't don't go out burning up all your man's money, you know? And I got to thinking, well, maybe that was why he was upset. I mean, he, you like you said, you don't really know, but you you definitely know he was he was upset about something, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, obviously, but uh, it's it's really not super clear on what he's upset about you know and uh but you know again it's a it's a traditional uh tune you know and 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 that's one thing that i guess you can kind of um admire about groups like this is this you know they don't shy away from um the traditional uh music you know even if it is sort of uncomfortable um uh, yeah yeah so what did you guys think uh, Martin Kathy, uh, like you said, uh, you know, amazing, you know, guitar player, uh, his voice. It, it was it was something when I initially started listening to this it was hard to to sort of grasp what he was doing with his voice. And until I kind of looked and, and read, you know, more about them, you know, as like like you said in the book, you don't necessarily have to be the best singer, you know, to sort of, you know, do what he's doing and that's not even necessarily focused because like you said the the playing on this is awesome you know the 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 technical aspect of of what the musicians are doing you know like you said it 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 kind of brings this style of music to another level but i i think what what the vocals are more about it's 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 more about you know like you said telling the story and it giving you a perspective of of what was going on you know during a lot of what I guess I guess at the time, you know, these songs were when they were being written, you know, sort of what what the life was like then. Um, but uh, I, I do like this, too. I mean, it's it's just, you know, something like you said of of a mood where it's it's old Irish folk songs, you know, you know, of the style of like what you would hear, uh, you know, Irish Rovers and the Chieftains and, you know, things of that nature. And uh, it, it was some good exposure for me. I had never really heard them at all before, uh, and until I listened to this compilation, either uh, either Dave or Martin, and I, I I definitely like it. But like the one thing that that kind of you know took me aback at first was was Martin's voice. I mean, it was it was hard at first. I was like, is he is he deliberately doing that, or you know, is that just the way he sounds? And and then like like. Like we were saying, I, I felt better once I read in the book about how, you know, don't necessarily focus on his voice not being pleasing to you. You know, and I was like, OK, I, obviously I'm not the only one. You know, <laughs> I thought I was missing something. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely, you know, great storytelling, like you said, you know, sometimes really hardcore where you're like, man, I mean, was it really that serious? You know, but, you know, it. It was just kind of how things were, I guess, you know, then and I guess sometimes even now. So, but um, anyway, um, uh, Brian, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, uh, what you thought about this. I'm, 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 I'm definitely sure you, you, you had uh, some thoughts about the, the lyrical content as well as the, the, the music. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that one line later on, you know, after he meets his wife and, 
and uh and you know he he goes and <clears throat> he gets a rope you know but then <clears throat> she comes and gives him a kiss and then she's like oh you know i've missed you and we're gonna you know basically go make love we'll bar the door so neat and snug you know there, there's just some of the lines i remember but <laughs> there's this one stanza where he, <laughs> He basically says, and then he took a stick and he beat her until she was wonderful sore. Yeah, mm. yeah, right. Wonderful sore. Yeah. I was like, wow, <laughs> yeah. man, that is. I mean, by our standards, dark, but um, <laughs> you know, but but I, it is. Uh, it, I like the tune. I like the tune. It's it's a typical great uh, English um, folk tune. Uh, um, obviously strophic in nature there is no bridge there is no chorus it's just the same thing repeated over and over um but yeah i, I started listening to it it's a it's an interesting song it's long it almost kind of gets onto the rhyme of the ancient mariner you know or or wreck of the edmund <laughs> Fitzgerald. like <laughs> there's a ton of verses to this uh, when you say rhyme of the ancient mariner, it always reminds me of the Iron Maiden version. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> the hills. that's yes. right. Um, so let's check this out. This first track from Martin Carthy. This is the Man of Burnham Town. So as he was going down the road, oh, he got such a dismal noise. Hadn't do should it be but his own dear wife along with the Burnham boys, bright boys, along with the Burnham boys. This poor man stood there thinking, and his heart was nearly broke. Then he went back and he fetched the maid while he prepared a rope, a rope while he prepared a rope. Then she came a-skipping and a-jumping in, gave him such a joyful kiss, saying, you're welcome home, kind husband, dear, long time you have been missed, me boys, long time you have been missed. So we'll bar the door so neat and snug, and let us go to bed, for the pain that do lay in my breast, oh, it can no longer wait, me boys, oh, it can no longer wait. Then he took a stick and he beat her Till she was a wonderful sore For bear she cried, oh husband dear And I'll never do that no more, no more And I'll never do that no more Oh and if you do I'll make you rue And curse the day you were born For a cockling of your husband dear I'll make you wear the horn Me boys, oh I'll make you wear the horn so all you women in Burnham, come listen unto me. And don't you spend your money on waste when your husband is out on the sea. Me boys, when your husband is out on the sea. And we just heard the man of Burnham town. And um, ladies, don't marry anybody from there. But uh, <laughs> uh, so the next uh, track, Biker Hill, um, you know, musically on this one, I thought it was really interesting from my perspective because you hear something that you really never hear in folk music, which is this, uh, you know, odd meter scheme. You know, you yeah. have this um, interesting sort of four plus five uh, rhythm scheme in this and it's sort of repeating and repeating over and over again it's kind of you know I started to kind of laugh towards the end of it because 
it's like incessant, you know, uh, agree the way he's, <laughs> yeah, the way he's singing. It's like this, he's like almost out of breath by the end of it because, whoa, hello. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's almost like I, I, I got this thing in my head, like, uh, you know, I was like, man, this is sort of starting to turn into like Steve Reich or something. You know, <laughs> it all has this like minimalist vibe to it. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, that was the main thing that I picked up on, you know, was this uh, this uh, rhythmic scheme, this four plus five rhythmic scheme that I thought was uh, cool and, and really unique for the, the genre. You know, uh, what'd you guys think of this? Go ahead, Mitch. Definitely what, what you said about it, it, it kind of getting monotonous. Um the 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 scheme is it, it gets kind of to the point of where it, it it grinds on you, but but still you know it 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 has a, a beauty about itself, the the harmony in the song and 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 the the way the the music sounds. I mean, I I like that, but it that arrangement, yeah, it's it it goes on and on and on. I, I guess it's one of those things where you know if you're you're in a certain set if you're in a certain certain setting and you know you're sort of you know i guess sort of trying to dance and or or i guess jig however they would you know you know move about you know to the song then that would be kind of like you know that would be different i I can see that uh just kind of sitting in a in a setting where I was listening to it you know and and not really thinking about dancing initially, I was like, man, what are they doing you know <laughs> I I I really was was after a few minutes was like okay I I got it and again you know going back to his voice uh, it 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 took some getting used to also but uh, you know I I know that uh, this is probably what was uh, the style of music for for the day when when they first started you know I guess you know putting you know, lyrics and, and, and even poetry at times is what this sounds like to music, you know, you know, in an, you know, an old Irish village or even here in, in this country, I'm sure, you know, once you had people, you know, coming to America and, and immigrating from overseas and, um, you know, definitely from a historical perspective, you know, really, really interesting and, uh, you know, good exposure to, uh, uh, you know, another, I, I guess, sort of, you know, uh, good interpretation of, of Irish, you know, folk yeah. music, if yeah. you would, so to speak. I well, guess it's about as simple as I can put it. Uh, I think I, I mean, I agree with you about um, it getting grading towards the end. And and the thing is that, yeah, you know, the subject matter and stuff, the song, the melody might be traditional, but I seriously doubt, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I seriously doubt that this uh, this metric scheme is part of the uh, traditional song. You know, I think if he's going to, is he, if he's going to fool with it and update it, you know, I could have used uh, uh, some sort of maybe harmonic shift or something, you know, halfway or three quarters of the way through. Cause I think, you know, it, the, you know, when, when you're dealing with folk music, they're telling a story and they've got a story to get out. And so it can get quite long, you know, cause they've got to get this whole story out. And I think by the end of it, I think, you know, I agree with you, Mitch. It got a little bit monotonous, you know. 
Yeah. But I don't, and again, like I said, I, I got to thinking as we were talking, you know, because I I'm sitting here, you know, you know, trying to think to myself, you know, what what were they where were they trying to go? I mean, and and I guess it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Elliot Carr, you know, where 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 was he trying to go? And then I got to thinking maybe maybe if they're if they're dancing, you know, this is this is definitely something maybe that I could see people people trying to to dance to, you know, um, or step to, if you would. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, it was, it was tough. I mean, I, I tried to go several times, you know, you know, even just a few seconds ago, obviously, and, 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 and listen, and I was like, whew, um, yeah, this, this is, this wears on you after a few seconds, but, you know, it, it's, it's great as far as far as the way the music sounds. I, I love it. I mean, the it's it's pleasant, but it it gets repetitive, you know, so to speak. Um, but uh, good good discovery, you know. I, I think it uh it, it's something that you know if you're if you're really interested in, in Irish folk music of, of any sort, it, it's definitely worth a listen to um, just to kind of hear what they're doing. Yeah, Brian, what'd you think? I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, you know, I, I was kind of, I kind of go into that sort of folk music mentality sometimes where it's sort of like, you know that you're going to be in for a long one, you know? And so if you don't like the first probably 30 seconds, <laughs> you're not going to like the tune because yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's just not going to change. It's, it's about the story. But yeah, I love the odd meter in here um it's very very cool and i think that i could have just really enjoyed it almost as much as if he didn't sing and they just tried to play with some different variations on it it would make a nice instrumental tune um if you were able to do some variations on it oh yeah but it, i agree but again it's a it's a strophic tune so you know there's not a lot of harmonic interest other than once you get past that first uh stanza that's all you're going to get but I did like the way that he had to just spit through some of the ends of yeah. the lines, <laughs> you know, and that that gave me a sense of just joy and and and, uh, and just to see like, oh, how's he going to get through? Oh, wow, that he did, he pulled it off, you know. But <laughs> sometimes more eloquently and beautifully placed than others, and sometimes it's like, damn it, I got to get these words out. Here it is, and he just bam, just says it. Oh, I uh, just thought, you no, know, just this is just an aside, but. I just thought of the Steve Reich piece this reminded me of. Which one? Tehillim. Oh, yeah. It reminded me of Tehillim, yeah. So, yeah, so I really liked it. I thought it was good, you know, and I like the playing with Martin McCarthy's obviously on guitar and then a guy named Dave Swarbick who wasn't really apparently credited with the original recordings that they did, but... I looked this one up on um, on his bio. That this one came out, in, I believe, '67. So, um, so it's an old piece. Um, but you know, Dylan's the same way, right? I mean, when he kind of goes off into some of the more real folk strophic songs on some of his early albums, uh, you know, you got to be in for the long haul, otherwise. That's that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you 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 definitely don't don't go necessarily here. You know how how great a singer Bob Dylan is. I mean, you know, even though I, I, I overall like his voice a lot more than, than Martin's voice. I mean, I, 
that's that's a really good point to bring up. Um, wow, I didn't even think about it like that. Um, but yeah, that's 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 good. Yeah, well, let's check it out. This last track from Martin Carthy. This is Biker Hill. If I had another penny, I wouldn't have another jiddle And I would make the piper play the bonny lass of Biker Hill Biker Hill and Walker Shawmill and call your lads forevermore Me boys Biker Hill and Walker Shawmill and call your lads forevermore Me Ginny she sits sour late up, me Ginny she sits sour late up Me Ginny she sits sour late up between the pint pot and the cup It's down the pits will go me daddies and down the pits will go me madders We'll try our will and use our skittle to cut them riches down below Biker Hill and Walker show me lads, call your lads forevermore Me boys Biker Hill and Walker show me lads, call your lads forevermore Me Ginny she is never near, me Ginny she is never near And when I call out where's me supper she orders up another pint of beer When first I came into the dirt, I had the trousers, nor pit shirt, and now I'm getting to a three or walk a pit stumble for me. Biker Hill and walk a shawmill, let's call you lads forevermore. Me boys, Biker Hill and walk a shawmill, let's call you lads forevermore. Hey Ginny, come home to your little baby. Hey Ginny, come home to your little baby. Hey Ginny, come home to your little baby. With a pint of beer all under your arm. And we just heard Biker <laughs> Biker Hill uh, from Martin Carthy. And we're going to move on to Cartola, his album Cartola from 1976. Um, Cartola was one of the originators and legends of uh, Brazilian samba. And he really got into uh, the very, very beginnings of the samba movement back in the 20s uh, mm. in, uh, in uh, Rio de Janeiro. And... Um, uh, he was uh, heavily involved in that movement uh, to really, uh, you know, the, the guys that originated the, uh, the style. Um, mm. He played in uh, many, many samba bands in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, in the 40s, he kind of disappeared, um, I guess, following the death of his wife and following some disagreements with his band members. Um, he kind of disappeared. It's rumors that he sort of disappeared into alcohol and and depression and uh, apparently was rediscovered in 1956 by a journalist. Uh, he was uh, working at a car wash. Wow. And uh, he was uh, sort of uh, reintroduced to the music world after he was discovered by this journalist and didn't release this album until he was uh, 68 years old. So he had, he had released one solo album previously in 1974 I believe at age 66 that was his first solo album of his career and uh, this is the second one he released at age 68 um, Cartola and this really has become a 
legendary recording uh in the uh you know in the world of brazilian samba and uh uh you know one thing i well i'll save this what what do you, what do you guys think of this uh really wonderful music uh especially if you like anything brazilian anything bossa nova um you know just magic what he can do with with just a simple acoustic guitar and his voice um i mean i i really dig brazilian music um you know i, I think this is a a great point for someone to go if they want to go to the roots of what brazilian music was from the beginning and i i had never heard of him before uh reading this book and uh you know, it was good to to sort of, you know, go through and discover, you know, tracks of his here and there, uh, which at first was a little tough to find uh, for me. But, um, you know, as I gradually began to go through some of his uh, material, I mean, I was I was definitely pleased, especially with with the stuff on this collection. And, um, you know, it's amazing to think that there was such a long hiatus for him. Um between you know this recording and and the one prior to this where i mean he was basically you know in a void for what 30 years uh which i i mean i understand how you know if, if someone can be really you know sort of depressed how that can happen but uh for somebody as talented seemingly as him i mean that's that's almost you know it's it's crazy you know i mean I'm sure probably some people probably thought he was dead, you know. Um, they did. Yeah, that was a big rumor that, you know, yeah, a lot of people thought he was dead. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah. To, to be off the scene that long um, and to have been, you know, so successful from the from the jump. And then, I mean, yeah, I, I would have been like, you know, amazed, I guess, you know, at his, his coming back, you know, which I'm sure a lot of people were. But, um, you know, I, I love... You know his his very seemingly laid back, very smooth delivery with his vocal. I mean, he never seemingly gets too too excited when he's when he's singing, and and his guitar playing is it's just really simple and sweet and harmonic. I mean, you know, just just very good, good, you know, bossa nova style, you know, music. Um, and I mean, just it's just something I, I've I've always kind of liked. Um, Is it? I have a question for you guys because I don't I don't know the answer. Um, I assume it's it's him playing guitar. Do you know that or? I I believe I believe so. That's a good that's a good question. I I, I say that, and and as as you you kind of mention it as I'm looking, maybe he doesn't. Huh. Well, the, on the instrument, I mean, particularly with this one. Which one are we doing? Are we do the uh, the Mi en Contrar, that one? Yes. Mi en Contrar? yes. Okay. The interesting thing about this one uh, is that there's two guitars, and then you've got your full complement of um, you know percussion instruments. Uh, you know the the talking drum and and all that good stuff. Um, but the other thing that's kind of interesting, <laughs> you guys got it. It's dominoes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was uh 
<laughs> I, I missed you guys there for a second because I had to get up and uh, turn off the phone. That's, That's okay. okay. We heard it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah. Basically, I was just saying that on this track, it's interesting because there's two guitars and then you have, you know, um, you, you obviously have your normal percussion instruments that you would associate with the genre, with the, with the, uh, the talking drum and everything else. But bass line on a bassoon. Yeah. Yeah, so, dude, the bassoon is the thing that, that yeah, totally stuck out to me. Very, very yeah. strange. Yeah. Very strange. In a, yeah. in a good way, but very strange. I mean, I've yeah. never heard that before. And, uh, yeah. And, and it's recorded, you know, it's such an old recording in that sense that it almost sounds like a, like a, like a crumb horn. <laughs> 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 but, uh, which is an old Renaissance, uh, uh-huh. you know, straight horn. Uh, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me. But anyway, it's bassoon. So I don't know who plays what. I, I couldn't I couldn't find anything that online that basically said, you know, here's the personnel right. on the track. Yes. Yeah, same here. Um you, you know, uh, but I, I you know, I love the guitar playing. Um you know, the guitar playing to me it, it starts with a solo guitar at the beginning. If it is Cartola, I mean, I think he's a great guitar player. I mean, he's you know, the guitar playing, especially the solo at the beginning, you know, it's sloppy and it's dirty as hell, but you know, it doesn't matter at all. You know, mm-hmm. the, the feeling and the energy of the samba is, is there and communicated. And it's, it's, I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I thought um, whoever is playing this um, is a great guitar player. Again, you know, we, we were talking about these uh, people that uh, we haven't really heard of, you know, as uh, referred to as great guitar players. But whoever this is, if somebody knows out there, please uh, email us and, uh, and uh, set us straight on this. If this is Cartola playing or somebody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the guitar playing on this and dude, the bassoon just put it over the top. I yeah, mean, yeah I, it plays, uh, I, I agree. Yeah. It plays some, some bass lines, but also plays some melodic lines. It's sort of like a, a weird hybrid, you know? Yeah. It's this. just one of those things that, that it, it's so akin to this style of music where you, 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 you hardly hear it, especially where it's played like this in anything else. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely, I love that sound. I mean, it's just so it's so unique to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's like somebody you know, you know, polishing a vase or something. You hear, you're like, man, what is that? You know, and uh, I I love the way that I mean that, that I I think this is what you guys are talking about. It, it it's almost like a wiping sound. You know, the, the quica or the uh, as Brian said, the talking drum, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, this basically is like a. It looks like a drum. You know, it's sort of held under the arm, and there's a like a stick that's attacked attached to the bottom of the drum head, and mm. then the player wipes a sort of wet cloth along that stick, and it makes that that noise. Yeah, I th- I think I have to have one of those. I don't even know why. <laughs> just I, I love that that sound. I mean, it, it's just amazing. You know, even if I I don't know how to play, I, I would love to have one of those. Uh, hey man, just know, head head down to your. I don't know if Guitar Center would have it, but <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good. If they don't have it, they they probably could point me in the right direction. But, yeah, right. Okay, so. <laughs> um, cool. Let's check this out. This first track from Cartola. This is Preciso Me Encontrar. Thank you. 
preciso andar Ou por aí a procurar E pra não chorar Deixe-me preciso andar Vou por aí a procurar E pra não chorar Quero assistir ao sol nascer Ver as águas dos rios correr Ouvir os pássaros cantar Eu quero nascer, quero viver Deixe-me, preciso andar Vou por aí a procurar and we just heard preciso uh, may as in me it's may preciso may encontrar and uh, we're going to move on to the second tune alvorada um again really the cuica in this is uh really prevalent um and this was like a staple of samba music you know i read that uh you know i mean i don't profess to be a great authority on samba, <laughs> you know, I haven't really heard that much of it, but, um, I read that the cuica is, uh, you know, such an integral part of the samba that in, in certain instances where a samba was not available, the players and the singers would mimic the sound of the, of the cuica with their voices, yeah. um, to just, you know, to have that sound in there. Um, again, this tune, I thought some great guitar playing on this tune, um, you know, something, you know, just something that you would hear at, at, a in the street in Brazil or at carnival or something. Um, but you know, what, one of the great examples of the genre, what did you guys think of this one? Alvarada. Pretty much the same, you know, as yeah. the first, you know, like you said, the, the, the cuica is just, I, I, I love that that sound it's, it is so distinctive and and so relative to this style of music and it, it has a a way of working into the harmony of the song and that that's another thing about about this type of music is is the harmony and the melody of this style of music it, it to me is irresistible um i i love old new whatever i mean when it's done right um, this style of, of, of Brazilian music to me is is wonderful, um, and uh, just a, a a great discovery to kind of you know touch on to you know I guess one of the the legends of of Brazilian music, and and to kind of get into what what he was doing and and what he could do, and um, you know definitely kind of want to know you know because as far as I can tell, like you said, I. I don't see any credit for him playing guitar. I, I, I normally just assume that he did, uh, but you, you may be right. It may have been someone else where, you know, he, he may not have ever even touched the guitar. It might have just been him singing. Um, but I, I love I love the style of, of guitar and, and, and the rhythm and harmony of, of the whole style of music with what he's doing. Just really, really really pretty at times and, 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 and melodic and, and just, you know, even, even at, you know, the fact that I, I don't, I don't speak Portuguese, it doesn't even matter. You know, it, it just sounds, it sounds so beautiful. You know, he could be singing about something, you know, totally unrelated to anything, but the, the way that it comes off is, is just so melodic to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Brian, what'd you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that this is a great, 
great piece. Um, you know, I love the guitar playing on this one simply because it, it brings up a very interesting texture um, with the counterpoint. It's almost as if it's free. It's definitely patterned, but the the execution of it is so noticeable that you feel like it's almost not quite taking a solo, but it's it's actually it's its own voice that everything else is sort of imbricated around. And it it has such independence in this track. It's just constantly moving, in addition to the yeah. bass line. And, and here, you know, you definitely have an upright bass in the back that's just kind of thumping it and laying it down. But the independence of this guitar line would normally be considered, you know, for, for us, uh, and and not very versed in this style, would be like, this is really busy. Like, can't you get the guitar player to shut up? Doesn't he realize that there's other people that are singing? <laughs> but... <laughs> um, but it's it's an integral part of the the line that he's playing, and it's adding as a sort of a, a third voice. So you have the low bass information, and then you have this wonderful guitar part that is a single note for the most part on the lower registers, but it's a single note type of thing. And then you have the chordal information that's on the top, then you have the vocal, and then you have the percussion in the back, and then, of course, you have the, the background singers. So it's this wonderful, um, tightly knit, beautiful uplifting piece i love it right on all right well yeah. let's listen go, to it go on go on and real quick going back to you know uh-huh. did he or not did he or did he not play guitar even the book and i think that's where I, I initially wanted to say that the book is it talks about him being a self-taught guitarist and singer so you know the the guy did play guitar you know at one time or another even if it wasn't necessarily on you know every track apparently he was a, he was a guitar player so Okay. That's self-taught. So cool, cool. Okay, well, let's check out this last track of Cartola. This is Alvorada. Lá no morro, que beleza Ninguém chora, não há tristeza Ninguém sente de sabor O sol colorido é tão lindo, é tão lindo E a natureza sorrindo, tingindo, tingindo Alvorada Alvorada lá no morro, que beleza Ninguém chora, não há tristeza Ninguém sente de sabor Você também me lembra a alvorada Quando chega iluminando Meus caminhos tão sem vida E o que me resta é bem pouco Quase nada de que ir assim Bacana, uma estrada perdida Alvorada Alvorada lá no morro, que beleza Ninguém chora, não há tristeza Ninguém sente de sabor and we just heard Alvorada, and we're going to move on to opera legend Enrico Caruso, another uh, sort of compilation album. 
um, of his very early recordings. Uh, this was this particularly one called uh, 21 Favorite Arias, released in 1990. And, you know, this recording, it, it really focuses on Caruso as a singer and uh, Caruso's impact, you know, as a recording artist, a very early recording artist and a singer. And really, d- not on the uh, the operas themselves. So I'm I'm not going to be talking about the operas, because uh, what we really should be talking about here is Enrico Caruso. You know, the man and the singer and the legend that was uh, Enrico Caruso. And uh, you know, Enrico came up much like the Carter family um, in this very early uh, early days of recording. And you know, um, back in the teens and the twenties when the recording industry was just getting off of its feet and you had a lot of uh, recording impresarios, I guess, um, trying to uh, to build their recording businesses. And they're just really sort of kind of sometimes frantically looking around for something to record, you know, something worthwhile to record or somebody worthwhile to record and release. And uh, this is what happened with Enrico Caruso. He was already... Uh, you know, a, a successful, you know, opera singer. And, uh, uh, he was approached, um, in a, about 1902, uh, from a representative from London's gramophone and typewriter company. Um, that, that sounds <laughs> Isn't that funny. funny. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, basically he's like, you know, uh, I want you to sing, you know, 10 arias. I want you to come in and one afternoon to the studio and sing 10 arias and you know i think uh tom moon aptly says in the book you know he's like try getting an opera singer to do that today you know (laughs) but uh you know uh, at a fee of a few hundred pounds um and uh you know just come in sing these 10 arias you know we'll lay it down and and whatever so caruso was like sure and uh they went in and recorded these things and uh as tom moon says you know the rest is history this launched a huge recording uh, career for Enrico Caruso and introduced him really to millions of people across the world. And really one of the first, I would say big time recording stars, uh, Enrico Caruso. I mean, really was one of the first recording stars, um, worldwide recording stars. Uh, and yeah, I've uh, do you guys want to say anything before I uh, continue to prattle on? Just just surprised at how I didn't really know who he was until the first moment I heard the first note come out of his mouth, you know, on, on the, I believe the first selection we're going to talk about. And I thought to myself immediately, I was like, you know, the Godfather and the Untouchables and every Italian style mob gangster movie of of you know sort of like the that that era that that you know kind of came out that's the first thing that came to my mind i was like oh okay so that's where that voice comes from you know it's kind of like one of those situations where you're not a classical music fan at all but you know classical pieces because of you know their sort of legend and and relevance in, in popular history you know, just through commercials and, and movie scores, he is to me is that big where his voice and his style 
and what he did, like you said, as being one of the very first recorded sort of artists of any genre, you know, makes him, you know, that enormous. And, um, uh, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about, you know, you know, before we started recording, he must have been a legend in his time where he took this sort of, you know, style of singing and, and made it, you know, so popular. Um, I mean, to, to have, you know, no really, you know, recorded sounds of this type, uh, you know, that's that just boggles the mind where they, like you said, they had to go look for people, you know, to make records because people really, I guess, apparently were not making them. And um, I guess because, you know, it, it, according to the, the art, some articles I read, people were kind of concerned with the way they sounded. They didn't think that it would give a, an impression of how, how good the music was. And, and apparently, you know, I guess Caruso just kind of looked beyond that and thought, you know, I, I definitely want to have my voice go out and, and sort of be exposed to more people. And I guess he looked at this as sort of like a medium, you know, obviously to, to do that. And I mean, like I said, it, it amazes me that, that there were really not many recorded sounds of, of any sort before this. I mean, I'm like, you know, I, what were people doing? I guess they relied more on the radio. Um, but, you know, it's 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 pretty, pretty remarkable point in history. Um, uh, not unlike the, the Carter family, you know, when they're first, you know, signing and recording of, of what they did. I, I would liken this to, to that as well. It, it was a very historical moment in in American music history, I would say. Yeah, Brian. Well, if there is a sacrosanct demigod uh, gold standard to tenor operatic singers, Enrico Caruso is it. And I think his cultural importance can't be underestimated um, by any stretch. The guy is uh, a true legend. And he um, was one of the first artists to sell over a million copies. He was one of the first artists to actually generate over over a million dollars in royalties mm -hmm. from recorded performances. Now, a million dollars in nineteen, you know, the early nineteen hundreds is close to Huge. maybe a, a yeah. that's close to it's close yeah. to a billion for us. You it's know? a lot of money. I, yeah. I remember I remember reading that his annual tax bill was about one hundred and fifty four thousand dollars a year. That's that's high by today's standards for billionaires. Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett probably plays you know more than that. I mean, you're talking about the upper one percent of uh, of that. So uh, fabulously wealthy, um, had some interesting uh, interesting times. Ended up um, you know falling in love and and leaving one wife for another, and she left her husband. And she was also his singing coach. I can't remember her name. And they had a uh, they had some children together. In about eight years, I think she bore him four children, if I remember right. But uh, I mean, this guy is it. He is he is the standard. And when you listen to Pavarotti, which most of our listeners will probably at least have more of an association with, 
every time I hear Pavarotti sing, I think of Caruso because he was so, so, so very similar. And that was the gold standard. I mean, if you didn't sound like Caruso, there was no way, yeah. that, you know, that you could actually have a career in this. So I, I, I love, uh, I love all of, all of his work. I mean, just a fabulous, uh, a fabulous singer and, um, loved to sketch. He, he loved to sketch his friends and he liked to sketch himself when he was in costume, kind of a dapper guy. Um, you know, didn't do too well, but he was one of the first guys that actually started to venture into film. So if you think about the classical performers, he was actually kind of hip to what was going on with technology. I mean, the, uh, the, these recordings have made him fabulously wealthy, and then he did get approached to do a couple of movies. One was silent, I believe, but he did actually do some film work uh, in which he was basically singing in the, in the movies, but... Mm. That is uh, that was lucrative for him, even if the box office failed. And I remember, I can't remember what film. It's on the wiki thing, but um, that I looked over, and it basically was saying that uh, one of the films, the guy paid him a hundred thousand dollars to sing this movie, a hundred grand back yeah. then. Yeah, that's huge. You know? And uh, and of course the movie flopped, but you know Caruso made out like a champ, so uh-huh. good for him. <laughs> You know, so yeah, I I think it's great. I don't know about these actual performances in the sense of of where it is um, in his career, but you know, there's plenty of great things to choose from from Enrico Caruso, oh, yeah. and um, he actually sold more records. Uh, just case in point, he sold more records dead than he did alive. Yeah, I believe um, that. He was one of the when he died, they had a he. That's when he started selling over a million copies. Is when he died. Hmm. Um, he was one of the first of that sort of posthumous record sales that we see every time a superstar dies. You know, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Hendrix, you know, George Harrison, Lennon, and so on and so forth. You know, it, it happens, uh, but he definitely reaped the benefits of that, um, at least his heirs did, hopefully, if it was structured right, but most likely not. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, Pavarotti, which is, you know, Pavarotti is a, in a direct lineage, really. Uh, from Enrico Caruso and one just sort of side anecdote you know I, I just thought of when you mentioned uh, uh, Pavarotti was uh, when I was still living in Houston I was this is I was probably like 19 at this time and I was working for this uh, piano company and I was like fixing pianos and restringing pianos and all that stuff and one of the things I did was I helped move pianos because we had a bunch of pianos for rent and so one time I delivered a piano to Pavarotti's hotel room and uh, it was like a couple hours before Pavarotti arrived. But first of all, this hotel room was like, you know, <laughs> I'd never seen anything this this huge or lavish before. If you're going to um, put a piano in it, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And um, it was it was like a full house. You know, it had rooms and bathrooms had a full kitchen and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, I remember when I was delivering the piano, they were also delivering, uh, Pavarotti's dishes and cookware and his own. So he traveled with his own chef and they, they traveled with their own, uh, dinnerware and silverware and, and cookware and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I just thought, you know, what a different universe that this guy lives yeah. in. And, you know, this must have been like a, a, a little glimpse into what Caruso's life must have been like, yeah. you know, he, you know, traveling around. And, 
it, yeah, he was the man exactly, just like just like Pavarotti. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, this first uh, tune that we're gonna l- listen to, well, tune this first aria, I should <laughs> say, from uh, uh, Leon Cavallo's opera *I Pagliacci*, uh, premiered in 1892. Uh, this famous aria *Vesti la Juba*, which means dress coat um, in uh, Italian. Um, this is probably one of Caruso's most famous roles that he plays uh, played as Canio, the the uh, clown from uh, this uh, this uh, I Pagliacci opera, and it's one of the most famous arias that that tenors can sing. It's got this uh, unbelievably emotive moment, you know, in the in the middle of it when it's it, the orchestra comes to this huge swell crescendo and you know the tenor starts belting out you know the the huge climax of the piece and it's very very emotional and powerful and it does you know for us in uh, 2012 it evokes like you said you know the whole uh, gangster mentality of course you know when this would have been recorded I don't think it would have evoked that um, yeah it was was kind of prior to that that period I would say but the the thing that the one thing that made me say that if you see the movie uh the untouchables movie that that has you know de niro you know playing capone and, and kevin Costner playing elliot ness there is a scene where this plays and uh de niro's character is actually watching you know on stage the the particular uh piece being performed on stage and and away from that, in a cutaway sort of edit, is uh, uh, Sean Connery's character, who I, I can't remember at the time. He's basically being being assassinated, um, and uh, you know, it, it's just a I, I I I cannot hear this without thinking about that scene. It, it so works because you know, in one scene, you know, you have. Um, one of Capone's men kind of leaning into his ear and letting him know that they've, they've taken out one of the untouchables. And, and he seems to be weeping along with the performance because he's moved by that, but also seems to be pleased that, you know, one of his adversaries is being wiped out. And then also the scene of where, you know, you see Sean Connery, you know, just, you know, bullet, bullet riddled and, and laying in his own blood. And it is, it just it just really helps that scene the whole piece and i mean that that's kind of what i i think i was kind of leaning on when i thought it it kind of makes me think about that whole era that whole prohibition especially that era where you know the the mob was was sort of coming to you know blows or or or, or at odds with you know the the federal government and and, and trying to sort of you know, stay in power. And anyway, uh, like you said, just, just a legendary performance that, I mean, I, I, I don't know if they knew or, or, or if Caruso knew how, how much it would affect, you know, sort of like the fabric of American music as we see it today. I mean, uh-huh. I'm sure he had some, you know, some thought, but I mean, it, it's, it's just a legendary piece of music i mean you know that that has gone on to be used again and again and in various forms you know with 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 film and 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 you know stage performance i mean just you know like i said i i I knew from the first moment when i listened to it 
I was like, oh yeah, I definitely I know this, you know, not even necessarily knowing who Caruso was, you know, by name, but I definitely knew this piece. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, on to the actual piece of, at hand we were going to listen to, which I um, didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, uh, this piece, Brian, did you have any uh, thoughts on this piece? No. Mm-mm. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful piece. It's a classic. It's classic. I mean, it's yeah, it, it, like yeah. I think I think Mitch said it well, you know, very well. So none for me. Okay. Uh, just one other thing I wanted to throw in is this sort of interesting that I discovered in uh, listening to this piece and researching it is that Caruso, you know, he is certain arias that were really popular. He recorded like again and again and again, like in throughout his life. And so you can hear a lot of different versions of this aria. The one we're going to listen to is from pretty early in his career from when he was a, you know, pretty young man. And then you can listen to versions from really late in his career, you know, when he's getting up there. And uh, it's really interesting to hear how a person's imp- uh, interpretation of this music can change over the course of their life. And um, but the thing I really love about this particular performance that we're going to listen to is just the the kind of youthful passion and, and, and vitality that's in this performance. I just love it. The other thing is... Dude, Caruso's voice. Okay, we were talking about the recording techniques of the time, which, if we look at uh, compared to what we have now, are, seem unbelievably primitive. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, sound quality is an issue and all that stuff. When you hear the piano, when they're recording, the piano sounds really scratchy and and you know, like it's been sort of eviscerated. Um, man, it, Caruso's voice somehow like transcends the technological limitations of the time and you can feel how powerful his voice is even through this limited recording technology it still comes out like unbelievably powerful i i I totally Um, agree with you totally agree yeah so yeah let's check this out this first track from enrico caruso from e pagliacci this is vesti la juba Oh, 
And we just heard Vesti La Giuba from Enrico Caruso. We're going to move on to our last track from Mephistopheles, um, the opera. And uh, I didn't, I do not know which opera this is for, what composer this is from. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I failed in my research there. But <laughs> this, uh, you know, I, I picked this aria because um, it shows kind of a different side of Caruso. Um, you know, the side that we just heard in the Pagliacci opera is, is the one that we sort of associate with uh, the Pavarotti's, you know, these tenors that belt out these hugely powerful arias. And this one is a little more song-like. It's almost a little more crooner-like. It's like a softer side of him, you know. And it's just kind of nice to hear um, this, uh, I don't know, th- these different sides of his talent. You know, like they, these aren't all these uh, giant, you know, you know, I don't know. Like like the previous piece we heard yeah 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 yeah, yeah. they're not all like these show pieces you know don't they're not all like vocal show pieces um yeah brian what'd you think of this one well um i like this one too uh it's definitely like you said much more lyrical um and not as much of a, a performance in the sense of he is embodying a character um like you would have heard just on these two recordings that you're gonna have on the podcast the first one is obviously much more of a character in performance, and this felt more like a performance that happened to be yeah. a character. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, there's nothing bad. You you <laughs> you can't say anything bad about yeah. <laughs> about Caruso. I mean, the guy just had flawless uh, flawless technique in every way, and uh, you can't complain about the music because he didn't write it. So if you don't like particularly like the pre, you know the piece, then uh, you know it's not his fault. But the guy is definitely bringing out so many subtleties, and I love his expressiveness. Just in general, I love his expressiveness that he's able to really perform with uh, huge crescendos, very emotional in nature. And I don't know if we we talked about it, but. Um, you know, he died, I think, when he was 48 years old. And uh, it was basically as a result of a pillar hitting him during one of the one of the operas that he was in. It hit him in the back, uh, sort of near his kidney. And I think his kidney was abscessing. He started to have uh, pus in there and started to have very, very sharp pains. And, um, and he eventually died from that. So I guess wow. it turned... I guess yeah. it's septic, but it also looks like he he wound up going to a doctor where he he also picked up a some other sort of infection trying to treat that, and I think that was one of the things that really really did him in um, where he he was treated, and, and apparently whatever whatever means they used it, the the setup was not sterile, and I think the 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 viral infection or whatever it, it got in his body and. And he just, like you said, he, he never could recover. And, you know, just apparently his, his demise was not very pleasant at all. He was in a lot of pain. Oh, man. It looked like, and ooh, you know, and, and not very, he was pretty young. I would say fairly young when he passed. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, lived, lived quite a life for someone, you know, of that age. But, yeah, he, he I think he was 48 when he died, um, you know. Not very, uh, 
not very long, but like you said, just a just a nasty abscess and just ugh, yeah, you know, tragic. Ugh. Just like the tragic clown of Pagliacci. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, you're right. You know, but um, yeah, just I, I'm I'm really glad to to get some exposure on on his life and legend. Uh, to to think, you know, just because a lot of people simply did not want to have their their sound, whatever the music was, come through at the time what was you know considered some somewhat primitive, you know, the way the the, the way records sounded, but he was so confident in his own ability, you know, and, and with obvious reason, you know, we could see why he pressed on through and it, it came out to be so successful for him. You know, I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, anyone not wanting to have their, their music recorded so that people can hear it. I mean, up to that point, I guess, but, you know, I guess he, he was, he was willing to take the chance and it, it paid off. I mean, that that's one of the things about him that really still amazes me is that he was he was one of the first, you know, to have his his voice or his sound recorded on yeah. on records, you know. Yeah, man. Uh, one one other, one other thing I think it might be kind of interesting uh, as a cultural thing, but you know, with the advent of the recording industry, you know, some of those performers were really getting paid the majority of their bread and butter was from live performances and in oh, some yeah. ways we've come full circle you know with today's market um but so when they were trying to negotiate you know the idea of paying an artist a royalty off of mechanical sales from a record company's perspective was completely ridiculous and you had the pros which you know ascap is the oldest really starting to put a lockdown on the uh, the Ten Pan Alley, that was their main catalog. And so when this started to come through, a lot of performers felt as if if they ha were able to actually have their performances captured on a fixed medium, in this case a 78 acetate uh, or shellac, um, you know, by doing that, no one would want to come and see them. And then you had this strange thing happen where people actually started to buy phonographs and gramophones and, and by the way just case in point phonographs and gramophones are not the same thing they are two different technologies one the stylus moves side to side and the other one the stylus moves up and down mm. so um just more geek information but um but the thing <laughs> is, is um you know that's a kind of a wild thing so yeah you're right mitch i think he was he was that confidence really carried him through and made him fabulously wealthy too. But he probably was, a, there was a time where he didn't have a way of knowing exactly how wealthy he was going to be. And he just did it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he embraced movies and even silent movies where he's literally lip syncing his, his performance because there wasn't sound on sound yet um, or sound to film. He did. So I think this guy is a, is a tremendous maverick and, and uh, you know, he just, he is the gold standard. That's the that's the summary statement. He's the gold standard. Oh, for sure. Um, let's check out the uh, last track from Enrico Caruso. This is from Mephistopheles. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
just heard our last track from Enrico Caruso and that is going to do it for episode number 34 of the 1000 recordings podcast if you'd like to send us an email and please do send us an email at 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can check out our website where we have links to all the recordings that we play and if you want to go buy those um, and we have information on there and how to uh, sponsor the show you can go to that website at 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can join us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp. And you can join us on Facebook where we uh, have other discussions, further discussions, and post other interesting and cool things. And we have one new thing this week. Uh, we have a new sponsor to the show. And I'll, right. I'll, I'll be making a uh, sort of official thing that I can play, but I can just announce it here for the first. Um, our sponsor for this show, our new sponsor is audible.com. And uh, you can go to uh, this special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash 1000 RP. And uh, you can uh, sign up for a free audiobook, and uh, we'll cool. get, a, we'll get a kickback from it. So, <laughs> so if you're interested in audiobooks. Um, they have over a hundred thousand audiobooks uh, that you can choose from. A lot of books on music, a lot of really cool stuff that I was checking out this week. And uh, if you want to get an audiobook for free, head on over to that audiblepodcast.com/slash/1000rp and uh, and do it. <laughs> so um, we have a five star review to read I'm, this week. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I'm, do you want to read it? So glad. Yeah, sure. I, I will. Okay. Um, it, it starts off saying, uh, like, talking music with friends. And um, the reviewer is uh, Variable Star or Variable. Yeah, Variable Star. Um, it says, this podcast reminds of the days when I would sit around with friends and uh, maybe a sparkling amber beverage and just talking about music. Uh, sometimes you agree with them, sometimes you don't, and sometimes you learn about something new. I find myself actually talking out loud to this podcast at times, adding my opinion, which I, I totally understand that. Uh, good chance to hear music you've never heard before. Great job, guys. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Variable Star. We appreciate that review. That's uh, very nice of you. Yeah, I, awesome. I Thank you very much. That. And uh, if you'd like to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review, we would greatly appreciate it. We'll read your review on the air, and it will help us uh, in our visibility in iTunes getting out to more listeners. Um, so next week we have uh, – we're going to start off with some J.S. Bach cello suites played by the great Spanish cellist Pablo Casals. Mm. Uh, then we're going to move on to – uh, another group I have another Brazilian group, uh, Cascabulo, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I've never gives heard you a of. headache. <laughs> yep. 
um, with a dude on the cover and like a tribal mask flipping you off. Yeah, so I can't wait. That, that cover just, <laughs> I just like, okay, you know that's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, then we move on to Nico Case. His uh, album Fox Confessor Brings the Flood. One of my favorites of all time. Awesome. Oh, cool. And then uh, two albums of the legendary Johnny Cash. Two of his best. Yeah, at Folsom Prison and American Recordings. So uh, those are the albums that we're going to be rec- covering uh, next time. And uh, dude, Brian, thank mm-hmm. you again for coming Thanks, on the Brian. show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Let's try it again. Yeah, cool. we, we love having you and love having your perspective. And, uh, yeah, and we will do it again um, as soon as possible. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so any parting thoughts or are we just good to go? I, I think I'm, I'm good. I, I, I uh, would like to, if, if it's okay, I, I want to dedicate this show to a friend of mine who, who passed away last week, uh, her name is Alicia Jones, lovely lady, uh, very unique. Uh, pretty sure uh, she was a lot like us, just really loved music, all types of music. Uh, very unique person, touched a lot of really, you know, different, very, very people, peoples, if you will, uh, in her lifetime. And uh, gonna really miss her. Uh, gonna dedicate this show to her, if that's okay. Uh, of course. Thank you, Alicia. Love you. Gonna miss you. See you on the other side, hopefully. Right on. Right on. Okay, and on that note, um, we will see you next time with some some new music. Later, everybody. Everybody have a good week. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>